Yo. Is this Marcus Erickson spelled A-I-R? That is correct. How you doing, my man? Flying, flying the friendless guys. Only IndyCar driver in history to win a race <laughs> and get his FAA pilot's license in <laughs> Victory Lane. How about that? Yeah, that is pretty crazy, I'll tell you that. <laughs> uh, I'm just going to hit record and we'll just go. I don't know, Marcus, this, this just strikes me as a Twilight Zone motor race. Uh, as I put in my little post-race column yesterday, you of the 27 positions in the field were occupying 17 of them by the end of the race, going to the back of the field, to the middle, to the front and back a little bit. You had one of the craziest races I can think that anybody has had. Were you able during the race or after the race to watch or, or look back and understand what an insane thing this was that you went through and ended up winning. Yeah, I mean, you, you pretty much sums it up there. You know, it was one of those races where I think everything happened. And uh, and I'm still, I mean, I watched the race back uh, last night, actually. And, and I'm still trying to sort of, even watching it back, trying to figure out how I managed to end up in victory lane there at the end of it. So, you know, especially after that start, obviously, it was... Uh, you know, first of all, when that happened, you know, when the incident happened and I see the sky and then, you know, I take my steering wheels, uh, my hands of the steering wheel and sort of brace for a big impact in the fence or something. And then suddenly the car is sort of landing on its feet and, and, and pointing in the right direction. And I have to grab the wheel and, and sort of keep going from, from, from being there to being in Victor Lane a couple of hours later. It's just, yeah, I, I don't know how that is even possible. <laughs> <laughs> Let me say thanks real quick, as always, to Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers for supporting us here on the Week in IndyCar, our guest episode. So happy to have you, Marcus, and also to our pals at torontomotorsports.com. So, as I mentioned, and I did take time to look through the lap chart, you he, th these are the positions in the field that you held on Sunday over 80 laps. P1, P2, P3, P4, P7, P8. P10, P11, P12, P15. So you missed a couple there, right? You weren't 13th or 14th, so you didn't do that good of a job, I guess. Uh, P17, P16, P17, P18, P19, P21, P24, and P25. Marcus, what? I mean... <laughs> Yeah, oh my god yeah so um, the thing yeah, that I, i'd love to, to get into no no i just the thing i want to get into before we get into our, our listener q a is you mentioned and rightfully so that this was one of your finest performances not in indycar in your career and so from the outside knowing how crazy the race was and the crash that you had and all that stuff serving the penalty, maybe some folks thinking, well, hey, shouldn't he be penalized more? How could he win the race after that? All that stuff aside, you, from a speed standpoint, were badass. Colton led 39 laps of that race. You led 37, man. It's not like you had the big crash, you led the last two laps and got a lucky win. You almost matched Colton for the amount of laps that you led. You also had to manage some well-worn red tires towards the end. Also had to make some pretty crazy fuel mileage. Manage all those things. Have Colton 
uh, absolutely like a, a, a missile behind you, chasing you down, and then just deal with a track that has the car flying off of it 15 times per lap with the jumps and the thises and that's seriously your ability to take all the things that i just mentioned manage them all and execute at such a high level i don't know if folks fully appreciate that when you said this is one of my finest performances ever you weren't just blowing smoke man you were stating something that was real and honest yeah, thank you so much. And then, yeah, I, I agree. I think, you know, all those things, just, that's the reason why, why I said that, because it was such a tough race. And yes, for sure, I had some luck there to get back in, in position. There is no doubt about that. But but also, there were so many times in the race where, where I had, like I said, I had, I mean, I had two two pit stops, one on lap 10, I think it was. I mean, two two tire changes. I mean, I had a lot of pit stops. <laughs> you but, five, yeah, two, two, five pit stops. Two, two tire changes. I I did basically thirty five laps per stint on 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 red tires that shouldn't last that long. And and both them two stints, I had to do big fuel numbers. And then and most of the second stint had to keep the quickest guy by far uh, all weekend behind, uh, whilst having to do that fuel number and save tires. So. I think all those things together, just you know, it was almost like an impossible thing to pull off, and I I managed to do it with a great help, you know, from my my fantastic team there in in the eight car, uh, and and you know their strategy and pit stops, and then you know giving me such a great race car. But but yeah, it was it was definitely one of the toughest challenges I've ever had, and and I'm so proud and happy that I managed somehow to pull it off and, and win that race. Let me ask one more question on this topic, Marcus, and I'm not asking you to say anything negative or critical about Formula One, but most people know Formula One car limited, right? You can be amazing, but we also know if we put Lewis Hamilton in a Haas chassis, uh, yeah, uh, welcome to fighting with Mick Schumacher at the back of the field. Not so much of the multi things you have to manage in a race in order to succeed that we know of. Can you just share with folks the satisfaction as an elite driver to know that from, again, fuel mileage, tire management, the track trying to kill you, uh, wicked, wicked uh, competition from other talented drivers. It seems like every aspect of talent and skill is being asked of you in order to succeed here. Is that as rewarding as I think it might be for someone like yourself who does want big challenges in order to succeed? Yeah, it truly is. And I, and I think, you know, uh, there's no, no doubt that, you know, I had a dream coming to Formula, to become a Formula One driver and I, I achieved that dream and I was very proud of that. But then, you know, to do five years in, 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 bad cars with small teams that didn't have the resources to compete and always be in the back and then sort of fighting for P18 or P15 is definitely very tough uh, mentally. And I I lost a lot of that sort of spark uh, in myself during the end of that five-year stint in Formula 1. And sort of th- that was tough. It was really, really tough. And that's why, you know, when I got this opportunity to go to IndyCar, I, I took it with both hands. And I, I, I really, really, really wanted that challenge. And, and coming here, you know, it was tough. And I was, 
it took me some time to get get up to speed and everything. It's, it's such a different series uh, and such a tough series as well. The competition is so high in IndyCar. I think people, some people don't realize how tough this series is. And, and it definitely took me a good year to get into it. And then I changed teams, obviously, and, and came to a fantastic team in Chip Ganassi Racing. But here, you know, we created a new team within the team with a lot of great people but had people that hadn't been in IndyCar for a few years so it sort of everything took a bit of time to to get up to speed and it was like a second learning year for us last year you know and then this year all that hard work that we put in uh, last year and that I've put in for the last two seasons is starting to finally pay off and I'm so extremely happy to start show what I can do what I can do behind the wheel, what potential I have as a driver, because I feel like for the last eight years, I haven't really been able to do that. And, and that's, uh, it is extremely rewarding. And, and, and I'm just really, really happy that I have that opportunity now. Chip Ganassi loves you. That's an amazing thing. Chip Ganassi doesn't love a lot of people, but he loves you, but you're <laughs> winning for him. So of course that's, uh, that's going to happen. Let's get into uh, our usual listener Q&A, Marcus, and some of them are serious, some of them not so much, but you know that from uh, past visits to the show. An old friend of mine, Rick Clement, who I used to work with in IndyCar uh, back in 2001, I think was the last time Rick and I worked together on a team. He says, Marcus, congrats on going uh, from worst to first. He says, can you walk us through the mindset after the incident with Bourdais and the strategy, strategy adjustment the team made uh, to make this one a reality. Uh, he's also curious about how difficult was it to uh, make passes throughout the race. So what is that mental process you go through of, I see Sky, I now see Tarmac, holy crap. Uh, do you kind of check your, you know, pat yourself down and make sure all of you is still there? What happens before you kind of shift into that strategy change? Yeah, so, so when the incident happened, like I said, uh, I thought it was game over and my race was finished. And then when the car was sort of somehow drivable, even with the front wing flapping around in front of me, I sort of, you know, quickly realized that, yeah, I need to try and get this car around this lap and back to the pits and, and see if we can salvage something from it and see if the car is drivable still. So, you know, I, I did my best to try and get around. And at one point, actually around lap, uh, around you know, turn six, seven, the tight uh, section there, the front wing got jammed underneath my front tires and I couldn't steer the car and I went straight into the wall and I was like running against the wall because I had no steering. And I was literally reaching for the switch off <laughs> button on the car wow. because I was thinking I cannot steer the car anymore. I need to switch it off and retire the car. And when I'm reaching for the button, the wing somehow magically pops up up again and goes away from being underneath my tires and I get back to steering so I take my hand off the button and start steering the car again. So that's how close it was that I retired the car on lap 5. Wow. Uh, and then, you know, we, we have to go through the pits multiple times. The guys in the crew and the 8 car crew did an amazing job to keep me on the lead lap and change the front wing and nose quickly enough to still be on the lead lap. I did a couple of more stops to check the car. There was no suspension damage. Uh, to change tires and then obviously the race got restarted and just before it got restarted we topped it up with uh, with fuel i think that was on lap like eight or ten and that was becoming really crucial because that top up with fuel on lap 10 really made our strategy unique in the field uh, and then on top of that you know we had this drop and go penalty so i think on lap 
11 when I started my race again. I was 20 plus seconds behind P24 in, in P25 and I couldn't see a single car. And at that point, my mindset was, okay, damage limitation. Let's try and get a top 15 to get, at least get some points for my championship. That was my mindset. Obviously, throughout the race, then uh, things happened, and, and the biggest thing for me, the biggest sort of point where things turned to my favor again, was that big pileup on, on one of the restarts uh, where I went from P18 because I'd made some passes and, and some people had pitted. So I went from P18 basically to P11 when I managed to get through that huge pileup in turn 11. And the, the, the interesting thing there again, coming back to this incredible race, is that I goes in the back to, of Kellett in that old pileup. My car dies completely, and I managed to quickly grab the clutch and bump start the car <laughs> to make sure I get the car rolling and not get stuck in that pileup. How the hell did you win, Marcus? <laughs> this thing's trying to die on you. I mean, oh my goodness. Yeah. So anyway, I get the car rolling, and I sold him up to 11 and realized during this red flag that every car ahead of me hasn't done the, the first stop of the race yet. So on my strategy, I'm actually leading if this strategy is going to work out and be the best strategy. So at that red flag point, when I'm sitting there in fifth lane, I'm actually realizing it that, hang on, this can actually work out really well. Obviously, knowing it's still like 60-something laps to go, so a lot of things were still going to happen, but I knew at that point that things can actually maybe go our way, especially after how everything had happen you know like i just described <laughs> that's so amazing uh yeah i mean you, uh, jamie Coates, you got a, a crazy kiwi making sure the crew's all whipped up and in great shape to get the car going again you got your uh wacky american engineer brad goldberg who uh, uh such a good guy he, i wrote in my little post-race column that uh he reached out first thing monday morning asking how to get a photo of uh you and the car and the crew in victory lane to robin miller because uh, you carried his get well stickers into victory lane. So, um, yeah, this is just one of those can't feel bad about uh, the result here because there's so much good stuff going on. Plus, some old guy with some gray in his beard. I saw a photo of him standing next to you giving you the trophy. Uh, some old IndyCar racer from Scotland or something <laughs> like that. Uh, yeah, all kinds of fun here. Why don't we go to uh, Andy Bauer, who is wondering... What was going through your mind when you were airborne, and has it ever happened to you before? So before crashing down and thinking your day might be over, did you have any thoughts, or were you just saying prayers very, very loudly? Yeah, I was, like I said, I was bracing for a big impact, and I was, because I only saw the sky, I was thinking I was flying against the fence or something, so I was, yeah, it could have been a very big crash, so I was definitely lucky to 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 not end up crashing big time there um so yeah that was that was uh, definitely not not a good moment and then if i've been there before yes i think the biggest memory i have is monza in, in 18 in yeah. f1 when i had that massive massive crash when i had a failure on my rear wing and then crashed in like 200 miles per hour down the front straight there so that's uh, but that was uh, uh, a lot more damage than i did this time that's for sure We'll just go ahead and say we're done with that phase of your career. Yeah, so, enough, uh, enough flying. Yes. Uh, per Carmen asks, uh, talking about the Bordet crash, I know that Seb used a not very nice word uh, to describe you uh, in his interview after the crash. 
Did uh, and I know that you apologized to him in the post-race uh, interviews. Did you get a chance to either text with him or speak with him? Because my uh, my dear French fry, he can hold a grudge. Yeah, I actually sent him a message after the race, uh, apologizing, uh, saying you know obviously it was not my intention, and, and I was really sorry for for ending his race like that. And he didn't respond, so I don't know. Maybe he's still upset <laughs> with me. Uh, I don't know. Well, let's see this weekend but yeah obviously like i said it was not my my intention uh, obviously on a resource like that it was a very strange place to have the resource first of all and then you know we saw that there was a lot of incidents and yeah. i i saw seb going and i thought it was time to go and then just before the crash happens i get the green green in in my ears but then obviously you're going and for some reason probably because people ahead of him was checking up. I think Seb lifted or something, so he stopped accelerating. And, you know, I was on full power at that point, so I didn't have time to react. So it's, it's one of those things that happens every every now and then. Obviously, I hit him, and, and, and you shouldn't do that. So, I, like I said, I feel really sorry for that. But, um, yeah, uh, I, I don't know what more to say. No, really, no. crashing's not a race strategy. So, yeah. So let's get into a couple of the fun things here. First of all, Ken Rocher says, Marcus, are you trying to take the Air Force sponsorship from Connor Daly? Uh, let's see. Austin Knight says, when are you putting in your uh, your submission to join the Swedish space program? Um, Ryan Terpstra. Now, this one's a little bit funny. says, Marcus, first you hit Romain Groshaw under yellow, and now Sebastian Bourdais. Does Simon Pagano need to sleep with one eye open? Uh, and do all French drivers need to watch out for you? I love that. Um, I know. Hey, look, it's a good thing, right? So IndyCar fans, <laughs> many of them have a good sense of humor. Um, our pal Hrishi Despawn asks or says, congrats on your second win of the year. It says, both your victories this year have come on tough physical street circuits. Is there something about your driving style or fitness or mental approach that ends up suiting that style of track, or is that just a coincidence? I think all my career, I've really loved the challenge of the street courses that I've been to. I think that in general, I like tracks. That's, I think, also a reason why I like ovals. Uh, I like tracks where the margins are not so big for error. Because I think it adds something to racing when you know you cannot go over the limit. Because if you do, it bites you. And that's why, you know, I really enjoy tracks like Detroit, like Nashville, like Long Beach. and, and, and But even, you know, the Ovals, the same, you know. It's, uh, uh, it is a unique challenge. And, and that's something I don't like with all these modern tracks with, like, runoff areas everywhere and, and, and asphalt everywhere. Obviously, driver safety always has to be priority and and then i support that 100 percent. but i think many times we sort of overdo it and make these big parking lots uh where you can sort of drive over the limit so many times without ever having to pay anything for it and 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 yeah i think that sort of takes something away from racing and that's why i i really like that challenge of being like in nashville you know it was walls everywhere it was narrow it was no room for any errors and, and you had to sort of build up to that limit and try and dance on that limit of the car and of the track. And I, I really do enjoy that. And, and I guess that's why I'm sort of driving in those type of, of races. 
Erickson lobbies IndyCar for 17 street races per season. That's going to be my next headline. <laughs> no, here. We, need, we need some ovals. All right, all right, okay. fair enough. But we'll keep the uh, we'll keep the Indy 500. I guess it's been around for a little while. Um, sticking to the street race theme, uh, Mr. N at Mr. Nagy 71 from Twitter asks after saying congratulations and your crew's amazing. This is the streets in Nashville, one of the bumpiest tracks he's ever seen. How does it feel? to drive on a track like that where seemingly you're getting punched uh, up your backside uh, lap after lap after lap. So uh, tell me about that, brother. Yeah, I, I'll tell you the first few laps were pretty intense and it was like, oh man, this is a bumpy place. Uh, but then, I don't know, I, I think, again, going back to Detroit as well, you know, with all the bumps there, it sort of adds a lot of character to it, and it adds a big challenge because you as a driver need to figure out how should I ride these bumps in the best possible way without upsetting the car. And and, and for me, you know, he's it, got to be able to drive, and I think he was a bit on the limit here in, in Nashville. We don't want more bumps, and then and we have there are bigger bumps at least. So, but... Uh, Apart from that, I thought it was a really cool layout. Uh, when I first saw the layout on paper, I thought it looked pretty boring. But then when I did the first couple of laps, I was like, oh, this is actually awesome to drive. And and it was a lot of fun. And uh, like I said, it was different bumps. It was different surfaces. There was walls very close everywhere. So And the elevation changes as well. It was a lot more than I expected. So I thought it was a really cool track, actually. That's awesome. Why don't we go to Adam Jensen? Asks, when you were being pressured by Colton Herta, was there a place on the track where you were thinking, man, I hope he doesn't try and force a move here? And there were some places on the track, like every street course, where there's some folks who think there's a big wide opening and there isn't. Were there any points where you were, I don't know if worried is the word, Marcus, but thinking like, oh, I hope he doesn't throw it down here because we might have a problem. Yeah, I mean, I, I knew that, Obviously, the two biggest areas for overtaking was down to turn four and down to turn nine after the two long straights. So I made sure that all my focus pretty much was on just making perfect corner exits out of turn three and eight to, to get a good jump out on the straights to get him out of my slipstream. And I think I perfected that very well. But I also, actually, I spoke to Dixie about that uh, before the race. We were talking about the into turn eight there, that it was actually a, a good opportunity to just, like, send it down the inside. And 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 I didn't know that Colton had done that move quite a few times throughout the race. That became uh, his signature move, yeah. Exactly. But So I didn't know that, but I made sure when he was in my gearbox, I made sure that I always got a good exit out of seven to make sure he couldn't go there because I knew that it was a chance that he could do try that. So yeah, I, I sort of had that in the back of my mind and I always kept an eye on, on my mirror there to make sure he was not close enough to, to try something there. couple questions here about the track. Uh, Dave at Dave NID from Twitter says next year at Nashville, Marcus, do you think they should do all the restarts on the bridge or should they maybe move, uh, Move it to some other section. Yeah, I think either do all the restarts on the bridge or do the restart, um, like do the restart zone shorter. Because I think the problem now was the restart zone was the whole pit in straight. So sometimes the leader went 
at end of that straight, sometimes in the beginning of that straight. And because it's so tight and narrow and blind around there, people don't know when people are going or not. And it becomes this effect of people accelerating and braking and accelerating. And when you don't have a big straight to see what people are doing further ahead, it's a very dangerous situation that can create accidents like we saw this weekend. So I think they need to either change it to the bridge or make the um, research zone a lot smaller so everyone knows when sort of the leader will go. Jeff Roberts. My, yeah, my, Jeff my, Roberts. My <laughs> no, I, look, I, I don't disagree with you at all. And Jeff Roberts adds to that, says, uh, any areas you think Nashville might consider tweaking the layout a little bit? He and many others have mentioned that it looks too narrow in some places. Again, we've got to keep in mind this. It's not like they're going to knock down buildings and streets to widen uh, the course for a motor racing event once a year. But uh, does ask, are there any places where you might think uh, they could either change the layout or do something in some of the tighter bits that maybe caused a few too many problems? Yeah, I think uh, I think the four through eight section was obviously a bit on the narrow side of things, but uh, I, I I thought it was pretty fun through there. Uh, but but yeah, if if anything, I, I would say there is an, it's an area where they can try and sort of make it a bit wider or a bit higher speed. Um, something I thought about as well, if there was a way to make the straight before turn four a bit longer to go like one more block before the the braking that would create a pretty good overtaking opportunity now it just felt like it was a little bit too short um so that's something as well that i thought could maybe make it a bit of a better race that's where most uh, that's where the majority of the hits and spins took place if you look exactly. at the uh, cautions slash penalties handed out turn four coming off of the bridge going over the bridge for the first time uh, before getting to the little short, what folks have been calling the Baku section. Uh, yeah, that going from high speed wide to narrow and slow in a short braking zone. Uh, that's where a lot of folks, you know, did uh, like we see every year at uh, Long Beach at turn 11 hairpin where you go. Yeah, there's really no room on the ins. Oh, okay, you tried it. Oh, okay, we crashed <laughs> and now it's yellow. So, yeah, maybe ex- extending that would be the, the most obvious thing provided they can do it. Yeah, yeah. Let's uh, let's see <laughs> this. These two I love. Uh, Lawrence Cunningham says, "Obviously, congratulations on your second win. How does it feel to have more wins this season than Scott Dixon and all of Team Penske?" <laughs> I yeah, mean, they suck, right? They're terrible. They should all retire <laughs> and quit the sport. I think that's what we can all agree with here, right? Uh, that's pretty crazy. That's pretty crazy stats. Yeah. Um, no, we had a good year, so let's keep it going. Right? Go get three. <laughs> Right? Go get yeah, a third. Exactly. Now, Lawrence also asks a question that uh, Todd Dostal, with the next question, too. Uh, he asks, or they ask, where, or Lawrence wants to know where he can find some husky chocolate in Indy. Uh, Todd also says he's been craving it for a while. I got to ask an honest question. Is this a real thing? I've never seen it. <laughs> I've seen it on cars. I've seen it on your car, obviously, the, the branding. I've seen it on the McLaren F1. Brother, I've never seen, we go to a variety of, of uh, grocery stores, whether it's high end, low end, I've never seen, is this real or is this something you made up? And, you know, folks are seeking this, this, uh, unicorn that doesn't, doesn't really happen to exist. <laughs> uh, I see your point here, but yeah, it, it is a very real thing. It's, it's pretty, it's getting pretty big now in, in, in Sweden mainly, but also in Europe, uh, you will be able to find it in supermarkets all over Sweden. So 
it's 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 becoming bigger and bigger over there. It's still like pretty young company. Um, obviously, this whole IndyCar thing with me was the plan originally was that last year they were gonna um, launch the product here in the states and and go quite aggressively uh, all over America. And uh, this IndyCar program was like the big marketing thing for it. And obviously, as we all know, this thing called Corona happened that sort of made all the plans go uh, or all the plans stop. Uh, luckily, they still wanted to continue to to support me and then do this program. But this whole sort of American um, uh, launching in America has, has been paused for the moment. Uh, but I'm hoping that this relationship with Husky will go for many, many years to come and that when this uh, Corona finally ends and things are back to to normal again. That we can uh, get the product here to America and really get it going well here in the states. I think I mentioned this before in a previous visit to the show, but I just always want to mention it because it always makes me laugh. Back in 1996, in Indy Lights with the Genoa Racing Team, one of our drivers, very talented guy from Los Angeles named Mark Hotchkiss, he uh, joined our team. And his primary sponsor was Fountainhead Water. And big, giant logos on the car, Fountainhead Water. Now, his father, family, racing family, but his father, very successful financial advisor and investment and, you know, managing hedge funds. So came from a lot of money, fueled most of Mark's career. We all said, look, this is a made-up thing, right? This is just you as a son of a wealthy racer, not wanting folks to think that your family's paying for it. Like, you guys just had some, like 10 bottles made, and your dad was out in the backyard with a garden hose filling them up with water to try and pass it <laughs> off like this is real. We did see, I think like a year later, we found some bottles in some weird little store somewhere. So, But we did have a theory that it was just totally made up and like, hey, why not? So... Anyways, that always comes to mind. But I'm glad to hear Husky Chocolate's real, although my fat butt, I should never uh, consume that stuff. All right, last couple questions here, my friend. Max Camposano says, Marcus, congratulations on the second win. Says, really interested to know uh, going to a totally new track like Nashville, what is that like from the engineering side? How do you work with your engineer to figure out the setup that might be best for some unknown challenges at the track? Curious if you start with a baseline from another track, maybe modify it a little bit. How does something like that play out from the uh, the race engineering and setup side with a brand new place like Nashville? Yeah, it's it's, it's pretty interesting, you know, because most of the tracks we go to in IndyCar, you know, the teams have been to so many times and they have a good baseline to, to start with. But, uh, but yeah, like I said, Nashville is brand new for everyone. So luckily we had it in the Honda simulator and we could... Um, to drive it there and then sort of get an idea on how the track layout was and, and sort of make some um, setup work in there. And then we actually went there with uh, uh, a baseline setup from Detroit uh, since what well, we talked about, how bumpy Detroit is, and then sort of reminds a bit of, of, of Nashville. So that's sort of how we played it. And then it seemed to be working. We rolled out with really strong cars from, from practice one and then all, all the way through the whole event. So. Wow. Well, that's, uh, I guess the, the Detroit starting point's brilliant considering how bumpy that is. So, um, Casey Kirkstra asks a question that I think we might've covered off, uh, on a past visit Marcus, but I'll ask it again. Cause I love it. He says, which track 
that you drove an F1, would you love to drive now with your Indy car? Um, and he says, are there any Indy car tracks, if you could go back in time or forward and race uh, using one of your F1 cars, uh, which one over here would you love to sample? I think an F1 car on Road America would be something very, very special. So that would definitely be the one. I think, you know, with the downforce levels you have in F1, I think Road America, the carousel through there would be pretty, pretty impressive. 210 uh, miles an hour through the kink, boys and girls. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So I think that would definitely be my pick. The other way around, I think in the car, going back now because I've been doing so well on street courses, obviously Monaco would be cool, but Monaco, yeah, it's just difficult to race there. It's cool to drive the, 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 the track, but it's difficult to race, and I think the races of in the car is what's the coolest thing within the car. So I would probably pick Singapore. I think Singapore could be really, really good uh, racing in an Indy car. That's a great idea. All right, we're uh, closing the show, Marcus with questions from two good pals of, uh, of our podcast. First of all, Jeremiah Morell, he says, So, Marcus, for Colton Herta, it's victory tacos after a win. He says, Word is that Marcus Erickson went to a Shake Shack and had some victory ice cream. If that's true, what is the winning flavor? Yeah, so I had a very big meal because after the race there was – hours and hours of interviews i only got out from the track at like 10 30 or something and obviously the race went on for, for a long time as well so 10 30 i got out me and my trainer got out of the track and i was starving i had 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 lunch at like yeah, noon or something so i was starving so on the way back we stopped at shake shack and i ordered the double burger with everything and fries and milkshake and coca-cola and everything you can think of <laughs> What flavor uh, milkshake? What what would you go for there? Vanilla, vanilla, classic. You know, look at it was that. Very good, very good. That is the uh, the late dinner of champions, boys and girls. Exactly. I love it. Uh, <laughs> final question. We're we're moving to uh, to liquids. JJ Gertler says to close the show. Did your celebration include mixing up a batch of husky chocolate with big machine vodka, and will it now? <laughs> oh my god, that makes me want to vomit. Yeah, maybe maybe it should. I'm I'm not sure how how they mix together, but yeah, maybe that's a future experiment. Uh, it did not on Sunday. No, it, it did not. But uh, who knows in the future what it, what it holds? <laughs> Next win, need to have your trainer carrying around that husky uh, husky vodka contact uh, combination for you in victory lane, brother. Oh boy. Uh. Marcus, congratulations, man. Seriously, so happy for you. Coming out of last year, as I wrote, and I think we spoke about as well, coming out of 2020, your new family at Chip Ganassi Racing, from Dario to Dixie to Mike Cole to Chip, run down the list. The race engineers, uh, your own and others, all said next year is going to be Marcus Erickson's year. This First season in 2020 with us wasn't everything that we had hoped for, he had hoped for result-wise, but the potential is there. Look out. This guy is coming. It's so awesome, man, to see everything they believed in in you that could be happening this year, everything you knew you were capable of. Like, it's yet another gem of this insane season where you are doing the things you knew you could, they thought you could, 
two-time winner already this year. Couldn't be happier for you. Thanks a lot, bud. I really appreciate it. And then, like I say, you know, I have a fantastic group of people that I'm working with, and I'm just really proud to be part of, of that group and be part of Japan Racing. So, yeah, looking forward to the rest of the year.